0: Welcome to Tsarak Ian, a podcast from Yeshivat Raita. Listen in as two Rabayam reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkapic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for divergent perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shibim Hadima Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. Today, join Rev. David Silverstein and Rev. Gavriel Singer, both of you Shabbat on personal reflections on the month of Elu and the Yemen and Shalom, everybody. This is Rev. David. I'm currently sitting here with Rev. Gavriel. This is an exciting opportunity for us to be the first ones on the Arayta podcast to be sitting here and uh, sharing Torah. From Yerushalayim, with the goal to hopefully spread it not only uh, to uh, the current students this year, but actually to reach the alumni, and hopefully this becomes an important medium for sharing ideas and uh, Torah with uh, students outside of the uh, Beit Midrash walls. Rav Gav, how's it going?
1: Doing well, doing well. The truth is, I feel a little uh, humbled because Rav David is the podcast expert. Of the, of the internet. And I don't think I've ever listened to a podcast.
0: So this is like, uh, this is Torah Online Unplugged. Just to clarify, my Bikiyasun podcast is limited to listening to podcasts. I've only been on like one podcast. So um, this, I have just as much anxiety as Rev Gav does when it comes to standing in front of the microphone. But um, anyway, okay, let's get started. And um, maybe um, I'll prompt Rev Gav to just offer some reflections about the yomim Noraim. Obviously, Rosh Hashanah is around the corner, and in classical yeshivas, when you hear the word Elul, you're supposed to be on the verge of fainting. I right? That oh my God, Yom is right around the corner. And there's a sense that, you know, your life shouldn't be the same during Elul. It should be a preparatory a dimension to what's going on. So maybe Rav Gav if have any insights about, uh, A, maybe some past memories of being a yeshiva bachar in the mirror and preparing for Elul. Maybe some current reflections on what it's like to have six kids and trying to prepare for Elul. Ben Menachal That's a great question. Listen, the truth is, everyone tells the classic story of
1: a that they go and the Shabbos and they say Elul, and the lady passes out in the lady section. Um, the truth of the matter is, if we're all being honest, I would, I would, I aspire to, you know, have some trepidation. You know, coming the days of Elul and the beginning of Elul towards the Amim Nuraim, which are coming up. But uh, on a practical level, I would say that, you know, I guess our prepar- the preparations, I guess, start for us around Shiva Sabbatamas. We don't talk so much about Khorba and the Besamigdash and that kind of, you know, these kinds of discussions. We talk more about Shiva Sabbatamas already. We're, you know, 100 days away from Rosh Hashanah. And it becomes part of the dialogue and it becomes part of the discussion in the house. But, uh, I guess it's more of a timer of reflection of you know how productive am I being, what am I doing with my time is maybe things need to be tweaked I should be getting up earlier, I should be going to sleep later, going to sleep earlier, maybe you know how productive am I being with my time you know am I spending too much time at home? should I spend more time at home, etc, and just kind of going through what my schedule of the day looks like, what my interactions with my family looks like, interactions at work what i 'm doing, etc, and trying to you know give it to essentially an overhaul of what my life is looking how it's leading. And the process of Elul is going through that. Now, I can't tell you, you know, that the beginning of Elul, I have these unbelievable emotional feelings that, wow, Yom Adin is coming, and I better shape up, etc. But I think, you know, as especially the closer you get to Slichos, and the closer once Slichos start for sure, that there is a certain sentiment of, you know, the Amos of and the responsibility that a person has to... You know, be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, this is who I want to be. It's not more like, it's not a fear of, oh, God's out to get you and you have to answer up for everything, but am I leading the life the way that I really want to live it? And I think that's something which, you know, for sure, in the house and I think also in the community is something which is on, you know, the highlights. It's, you know, under the limelight, for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember um, the past few years, you know, sort of Rosh Hashanah and the entire experience of Yom No Raim, was taking place under the larger sort of rubric of COVID. And uh, there were a lot of practical issues, like where do you dava Do you dava in the street? Do you dava in a shul, et But I actually thought that experientially it was sort of easier to get in the mindset of Rosh Hashanah during COVID, um, because at least for me, you know, so much of the experience of the Yom No particularly Rosh Hashanah, is about sort of an acknowledgement of the limitation of uh, a human's control over his own life. Right, And, you know, on Rosh Hashanah, you sort of say endlessly for two days straight that Hashem is the king. And it raises the question of sort of like, what is the significance of that? Meaning, if Hashem is the king, then he doesn't really need us to declare him king. If Hashem is not the king, then us declaring him king is of no value. So presumably, I think the idea is is that um, we spend two full days at the beginning of the year uh, declaring Hashem king. And by doing so, we sort of, you know, implant in our hearts the idea that, Um, As much as we sort of live in the illusion of control, and especially in a contemporary environment, we have enormous technology and extraordinary opportunity to really feel like we can make phenomenal advancements, when push comes to shove, uh, we're not really in control. And it's about that that awareness that, for me, Rosh Hashanah and the young is about trying to facilitate. When we had COVID, so you really felt that because no matter what you did, you just couldn't run away from COVID. Right? and COVID wasn't something you chose. You try your best to protect yourself, but you really didn't have that much control. And no matter how much you tried, right, COVID would find you. So I felt like it was like a good metaphor for experiencing like what um, Amos Adin is, because at the end of the day, you don't have, you're not fully in control. And for me, Rosh Hashanah is about really trying to inculcate that ethic. I'll just add one other comment, which is I think that actually explains sort of the transition from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. Because if you think about the way in which the cycle of Yom Kippur structure, particularly beginning with Slichos, so Slichos is about talking about, there's an element of like talking about ourselves and talking about sin and doing Ashanu Vagadnu, sort of preparatory element to Yom Hadin. Yom Hadin, we don't talk about that at all. There's almost no mention of sin in the entire lit- liturgy of uh, Rosh Hashanah. So there it's not about you know, our sins, it's about sort of declaring that we're not the center of the world. Once we understand that we're not the center of the world, we then transition to Yom Kippur where we then focus on ourselves again, right? Because if you don't have Rosh Hashanah, then Yom Kippur will be an exercise in like endless uh, self-exploration, which can be totally frank, it can be quite selfish. So the idea is you have two days where you say the world isn't all about me and there's a world beyond me and then once you understand that then you get to the place of Yom Kippur where you're like, okay even though the world's not all about me, it is about me also and therefore I have to make sure that I become uh, the best person uh, that I am. So obviously it's not easy to connect all the time to Rosh Hashanah, especially in an environment we feel so in control, but I think it's like an amazing opportunity every year to have that reminder and then it just creates a posture of humility for us really uh, throughout the year. That's, uh, thank you so much for saying
1: that, Rabbi David. Now it seems to me that I struggle with this, I'd like to know how you deal with this, that life is very busy. I'm sure, you know, in Yeshiva you have the pleasure and the luxury being able to take aside an hour, even half an hour, and, you know, having time to reflect and do cheshbon and nefesh, and try to really work on connecting to the growth that these special days provide. But, you know, you're a very busy person, you're running, you know, a lot of the logistics in the shiva, aside from giving a shirim, and you have a family life, how do you find the time to find these days meaningful in between all the busy...
0: You know, experiences that life itself demands from you. Right. I appreciate the question, Rav Gav. Um, I mean, the way I think about these types of things in general is that, you know, I just heard a very interesting uh, interpretation from Rav Ephraim Goldberg, who quoted in the name of the Rebbe, actually, on a podcast I was listening to called Headlines. I recommend uh, the podcast Headlines, very good podcast. And he had a podcast from Dov Lichtenstein about how to feel inspired in tfila during uh, Rosh Hashanah. So he brought in different speakers. So one of them was from Goldberg, who's a very uh, talented, engaging rabbi. I highly recommend, if you haven't followed his stuff online, listen to Shurim. He's really uh, somebody's good eye to listen to. And he quoted, you know, the Gemara has this line where it says, Halavai that a person should daven the entire day. right? So the question is, what does that mean? It's not practical to daven the entire day. You have other responsibilities. Like, there's just sort of no reality where you could function normally while davening the entire day. So he quoted from uh, the Belzarebi, and again, I may not get exactly the quote precisely, so I apologize in advance, but this is the basic idea, is that your entire day should be a conversation, a dialogue with God, right? So the idea is not that you're dabbing shacharis the entire day, you're dabbing mincha the entire day, but prayer is ultimately a dialogue with Hashem. So if you see halavai, like, ideally, it should be the situation that we see our entire day as a conversation. Uh, with God. So I think if you sort of take that model and then reflect outward, you realize that your entire day, right not only your time in the Beit Midrash, not only your time during davening, but your entire day is an opportunity to connect to the transcendent virtues that Hashem wants us to connect to. So there's a lot of different applications of that. I'll give you a simple example. So I have four kids. My kids are a little older now, but I still have some younger kids. So I think every parent struggles on some level you know, when you become a parent, to make sure that, like, you know, you want to discipline your kids. At the same time, you never want to yell, right? Yelling is sort of not productive, at least 99% of the time. So, but obviously, instinctively, sometimes you get frustrated and you sort of want to yell, you want to get upset. So, part of the experience of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, in this entire time of year is not only working on going through the makhzah, which is obviously a very critical piece, but it's on working on yourself to make sure that you don't yell, right? That you're not a parent who does those types of things. So if you start seeing your entire day as opportunities to sort of connect to these things and these like, larger values that are rooted in Hashem, so then it really is. Even though you're busy, you're not really busy because everything, even in your work, your interpersonal relationships, in your work context, um, are opportunities to find uh, religious growth. So you know, I think that you know wherever you are in life, if you see your religious life as integrated, you shouldn't it shouldn't be that hard to find moments where you really want to connect. I can imagine if you're in a corporate context, so there are all types of ethical decisions that come up um, in the context of deals you're making, et cetera, and you have to make decisions about how you're going to behave, and there, it's an amazing opportunity to really ask yourself what are the fundamental values that are driving your life. Um, just to maybe ask Rav Gav, we obviously need Rav Gav, even though we're both originally from Philadelphia, although I was only born in Philadelphia, he was raised in Philadelphia, but uh, we have shared Philadelphia roots, you know, one, one of the things, even though, sorry, even though we share Philadelphia roots, we obviously come from different uh, yeshivas, and I guess one of the things that I find inspiring, I like to think about, is um, stories of Gedol Israel and how they sort of have encountered the experience of Yom HaDin. One of the things I also listened to yesterday on that podcast with headlines was that Rosh Shai who's Rosh Herschel son, he told me that, if Harsha, he didn't tell me, sorry, he told... Uh, all the listeners on the podcast, he said that uh, his father, Rav um, stands for the entire Chazar Tashash Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, which is you know, not easy, especially if you're in your mid-80s. But, and I heard from one of our alumni that he experienced watching Rav Shekhtar Daven Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and just the experience of sort of seeing him in like an alternative sort of spiritual space was something which was really inspiring. So Rav Gav, do you have any uh, recollections of Daven? I assume you daven Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur in the mirror. So, you have any reflections on any of the Roshivas in the mirror? And give us some mirror tires or stories on what it was like in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur.
1: Listen, the truth is, when I was in yeshiva, it was the time where Nosson Sefi Finkel was already sick. He had he had a disease that he shook constantly, and so that he it wasn't you know saying it was very hard to hear him speak, let alone for him to have the ability to stand. So, I didn't have such a you know the ability to see him and how he related to Yamim Nuraim. So that's not something I'm able to speak about. But the truth is, I've had the experience of seeing other, you know, I would say, good Yisrael, and their interactions with Yom Nuraim. Um, two stories stick out in my mind, that's the truth, and they're totally different from each other. One is that for many years I dominated by a person named Simaya Tzimayr Simon is a chassidish person. He grew up in Muncie, in And to say that he is intense is like saying that Ramaz is comparable to Panovich. Um, He is like beyond intense. Every single tefillah is like probably the last breath that he has, and he's screaming his head off and he's stomping his foot. Um, And to watch a person like that on Yamim Neroim, where he would say Avinu Malkainu and he would see that he was pleading for his life. That's something which made such, it would take the reality of, I guess, the judgment and the din of the Yama Minurayim and make that something tangible and something that was so real That's something that, you know, I don't dive in there anymore, but it's something which stuck out in my mind. And, you know, to this day, that's something that I can tap into and try to access a little bit. In contrast, I have a story, a favorite story, that uh, I'm also very close to the Toner Rebbe, and Tolna is the exact opposite. Everything's very laid back, everything's not so serious. And he told me once that he, when he was younger, the Tolna rabbi, the current Tolna Rabbah, that he was walking from Ger back to his house in Beit Vagan, and he passed through the Shuk Machane Yehuda. And when he was there, there was a bunch of youth that were sitting around, and they asked him to sing a song with them. So he's thinking, I oh, said, so sing a song in the middle of Machane Yehuda on the Amun Nuraim, how could I do such a thing? So they implored him again and again and again, please do it, please do it. Say so fine, what do you want to sing? And they started singing, David, Melech, Yisrael, David, Melech, Yisrael. And he's looking at himself, he's like, I can't do this. And he walked away. He couldn't do it, it wasn't beyond him. He was a young guy. So after the Yom of Nirayim, he got a call from the ger No one ever, the ger never called anyone into the Chatzah, no one ever called him inside to speak with him, he called him in. And he said, what happened in Machane Yehuda? He's like, what do you mean? Uh, how do you know about that? What happened in Machane Yehuda? So he said the whole story. So he said, "David Malchusol Chayv Kaim" is very nice. Our the, the, the these are the days of Malchus Hashem. Why do not you dance with them? And to this day, on Neil Yom Kippur, the Toldner Rebbe has everyone stand up. And they dance and they sing in honor Keloton as a to fix that mistake that he had of not dancing with these people in uh, Huda. so just I guess the on one hand to see the sincerity and the reality and the depth of the the din and how to relate to that, and on the other hand to grapple at the same time with being so what what's a want from you?" And how are you going to relate to this in a real way? And if Hashem is asking something from you right now, so good, you can't have the most serious taverning for whatever reason. Or you have to be in college, and you're not able to be in yeshiva, or you have to be at home because your wife is sick, and you're not able to go to shul. So whatever it is, but this is the most you know, opportune way, and this is the best way to relate to the yamim, is something which, in a certain way, is the biggest form of accepting malchol shamayim, and accepting what Hashem wants from you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I... Um... I never learned in the mirror, so I don't have any particular mirror stories, but um, I think like for me, I I, I remember I grew up um, when I was younger, so I used to, my grandfather on my mother's side, actually both my grandparents, but I, I have very vivid memories of uh, my uh, grandfather on my mother's side uh, sitting next to me at shul, and uh, my grandfather uh, was a Holocaust survivor, and he didn't just survived the Holocaust you know, sort of uh, tangentially. Like he was somebody who was from Poland, and he really experienced the horrors of what happened to the Jews in, uh, in uh, Poland. Um, he lost uh, two of his brothers. He had to bury two of his brothers. Really horrific stories. And that was sort of like a big part of my life growing up. He was a Holocaust survivor who you know, very much lived the horrors of the Holocaust even uh, you know, after the war. And um, despite that, he was just like a very happy, positive, warm, and extremely smiley and affectionate person. And I remember on uh, Rosh Hashanah, every time when he would come to shul, so, you know, he would daven, but when we got to Hayom, the song of, you know, Hayom, 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 so he would sing it with like a very thick European accent and say, Hayom, Hayom, Hayom. And I remember to this day that um, whenever I daven, you know, I don't, this isn't necessarily a story of a throw. But it's a personal story that here you have somebody who sort of experienced the horrors of, of the war. Nonetheless, you know, he was uh, somebody who was able to get up every year and, you know, daven and really feel like he was connecting to the words and to the experience. And like that was something for me, which every year in Rosh Hashanah I get to the Hayom, I sort of get transported back to a reality where I'm sort of davening next to my grandfather. And in fact, similarly, I remember growing up my father's shul, so, the chazan for Yom Nurun was another guy named Nat Taubenfeld, who was a really an amazing uh, human being. And he also was a Holocaust survivor. And um, he daven Shachos, every year. And I remember as at one point in davening, we he would say, L'Rachem Amo Biyom Hadin. And he would scream it. And he would scream it in a thick uh, European Ashkenazi accent, L'Rachem Amo Biyom Hadin. And it was so amazing because you know, here is somebody who again experienced um, the horrors where there wasn't much Rahmanas. Right? He experienced something where there was Hester Pun. And here he's coming to Daven every year and just to scream Lerachim Amo Biyom Haddin. And just every year, every year, no matter where I am, uh, when I get to those parts of Davening, I'm like transported back to a very different time in my life where I was much younger. And I'm sitting there davening, and I just can't wait for them. So young, you know, when you're young, and davening is so long. And you, know, you uh, just try to look at the pages to see how much longer. And I remember Rablau told me like, different sheetas as to how you count the pages. Like, Do you count the English pages? So obviously, if you count the English pages, it's like a lot longer, right? but at the same time, it moves faster, because you get to two for one every time you turn the page. But I remember sitting there when I was younger, and I was just waiting for davening to end. But there was always that element of like, watching my grandfather sing hayom, hayom, hayom. And watching Nat Halenfeld sing Rahim Amobi Biyom Hadin," and those moments are things that really speak to me. And uh, when I daven now, even though I'm not in that space anymore, I think that one of the powers of the nusach of Yom Raim is that the second you hear it, you're sort of transported into like a different reality. Like when every year when I say "Vechen Tain Pachtacha," I, I feel like goosebumps in my whole body. You know, because the first part of davening you go through resembles standard shmona esrei. Then you say tein and you're like, oh my God, it's Rosh Hashanah, and all of a sudden you're sort of psychologically being moved to a different zone. And if you find inspiration through stories of Gedol Israel and sort of how they experienced davening and but I'm sure everybody has some, you know, experience that they've had in their life where they've had those moments of davening and a prayer which really connect them to something bigger. And every year when I say tein on some level I'm like transported back to my 10-year-old self. I'm davening there, and my grandfather there, and that fell me the And And It takes it a little while to reorient, Whereas, wait a second, I'm not. I'm 43, and I'm you know in a different zone. That's the beauty of tefillah. That's one of the beauties of Yom Noraim is that it's beyond just like uh, the fear. Right? There's also the element of like the Romanus, of like the glory, and uh, being in this space where you're connecting not only to davening but really to the larger collective, whether that's personal, uh, familial, or even in you know, a communal.
1: I'm sorry to cut you off but I'm saying it's, it's very interesting what you just said it's, when you said that you say these kind of goosebumps come up you know it's something that I struggle with personally is that there's so many different aspects of the Yamam Narayim. there's the aspect of the the din and the judgment for all of our actions which I think you were alluding to and the fact that you feel that, that fear that pacha the, the goosebumps that come on the other hand there's and wanting that Hashem's presence be revealed in the world so how do you personally come to some kind of congruence and balance between these different directions that the days are
0: pulling you in? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, to be totally frank, um, you know, I agree there's like different elements of Rosh Hashanah. The element of like uh, Yom Hadin, at least for me, is like a little harder to connect to. Like, I, I understand sort of intellectually the extent to which that's a central piece of our, our Masorah. Um, you know, the Rav has this explanation where he says, we say so he sort of channels the view of Yosef Albo, that the re- it's not that those things are magic formulas, but somehow if we do those things then we become somebody different and then effectively the arrow that was intended to be sent towards, uh, you know, person A is still sent, it just doesn't hit anybody because that person is no longer in existence, he became person B. So at least for me, like the Yom HaDin element is more about me trying to sort of like reflect and try and figure out like how can I be the best person to be able to be the conduit to receive Hashem's blessings. But I'm not going to lie that like that element of Yom HaDin is something which is not the easiest thing for me to tap, tap into. It's interesting. The Chayntein Pachtacha. I don't have the goosebumps. Um, qua Yira. Right. In other words, it's not so much that I'm afraid per se. But it's more along the line, in terms of Yom din, although that is an element to it, but it's more along the lines of like, you know, Revolby says in the "Alay Shor, that what it means, Yuras Hashem, is not that necessarily God's going to zap you, per se, but it's an awareness of the limitations of, you, of your power. Like, when are you afraid? Like, I always give the metaphor of like, if you're in a doctor's office and you're waiting back for very serious results from a blood scan, from a blood test, or a body scan, or if, imagine, for example, you're on an airplane, there's terrible turbulence, so why are you afraid? So the reason why you're afraid is because you have no control. I mean, the things that you have control over, you're not fearful of. So when it says so for me, it's like sort of like a shock to the system. They're like, right, we, we, get right you know, we don't waste any time, Rosh Hashanah. Right? We get right to it. So it's not like it starts off with like, you know, Shabbos, Friday night, davening yet, you know, I, I, you know, you start with like, you know, the Shabbos, you're in a good mood, everything's festive, you're getting excited. It's, you know, and he's like, oh my God, like really, there's so many things beyond my control that all of a sudden you start to realize, you know, the enormity of the experience of living and the enormity of what it means to be human. And that is something which is like really, really overwhelming. So uh, for me, like that balance is definitely more in the element of like the Roman, like the, the majesty and by through that, I sort of connect to the idea that like you know when push comes to shove, you know who am I? How much control do I really have? I try my best to do what I can in this world, but you know at the end of the day, there's only so much I can do. And there's the other element of like you know really yom din of making sure that I can be sort of the best person to be the conduit for for uh, Hashem's bracha. Um, Rav Gav, do you have any uh, svarm recommendations? I know you know one of the things I always think about is like you know the sitter, you know the sitter and the machzer. It's a book of philosophy, it's a book of theology. So like when we learn Bava so we learn Bava with Rashi, Tosfa, and the Ritfa, and all the other Rishonim that help us make Gemara accessible, then all of a sudden there's some weird assumption that I could just show up day one in Rosh Hashanah and I'm going to have the most meaningful davening. But I haven't even done any Hachana. I haven't even looked through the Machsar. So you have any uh, svarim that you use to uh, inspire feelings of connection during the Yom Norayim? The truth is, every year is something different
1: depending on what aspect I'm more focused on in that year. Um, in previous years I've learned the Kukhve Ur. the Kolchave Or is a sefer written by Rav Itzla Petterberg Rav Petterberg was one of the primary students of Rav Yisrael Salanter and he wrote a sefer which pretty much addresses number one what's the significance of Truva? why is that so imperative how could it be that in previous generations where there were supposedly so much on a higher elevated spiritual level that they didn't do truva when they had even Nevi'im going ahead and telling them that it was so important for them to do so, and how that ties into the yamim of um, So if you connect more to the, you know, you're being judged on all of your actions and it's so important for you to go ahead and do truva, that for sure is something which you can connect to in a serious way. Um, the truth of the matter is, last year, I remember speaking to someone that... You know, every, a lot of people learn Shari Tshuva at, during this time period. And if you learn the Shari Tshuva, he has 20 different steps to the chuva process, and it seems like things which are so distant and far removed from us that it makes chuva almost seem impossible. So I asked him, you know, how are we supposed to relate to that? How are we supposed to you now take these classical Musa works and try to, you know, improve ourselves from that, and relate that, and make that practical? So... You responded to me that on one hand you have to learn it because that's our aspiration, is to be able to be on such a spiritual plane. And you should know, you should know that such a thing exists, that there is such a concept of true, there is such a concept where you can lift yourself up and become you know, something which is purely ruchni and leave the phys- physical world and you know, come back to a place where the only thing you care about is There's such a reality. Practically, are you going to live there? No, it doesn't have to be, but at least something which is going to lift your aspirations, which is going to take you and want, the part of you is going to want something bigger and higher than what you're living at now. So, with that in mind, you know, this year I'm learning a Sefer called Torma Devora. Torma Devora takes the Yudgim Omidus that Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu after the Cheta Egel, and, you know, through this. You'd give you know—Moshe was able through that determining to change Hashem's mind, whatever that means, and Hashem didn't destroy Klai Yisrael. Well. And you know, the Ramak Ramesh Kodavira goes through and how to take those thirteen principles and practically apply that to yourself. And in a certain way, such a safer is totally above anything that I can really relate to in a practical sense. But at least you know, in an intellectual plane and on, a, on an emotional plane, to look at such a thing and be able to lift one's personal aspirations I found for myself that it's been very, very productive. Now, David, I'd ask you, you know, the way that the Khazanish put it, Rabbi Sol Salanter introduced a new concept. The concept was that you can take certain midos, like anger, jealousy, etc., and work on them as individual units, and go through a methodical way of trying to better oneself. Would you feel like that kind of in internal work and that kind of developing yourself and focusing on specific aspects of self-improvement is something that you found beneficial in your life or do you have a, your own personal unique approach on how to
0: work on your Midas? So this is a great question and there is like a whole literature sort of not only in the Jewish world but in a larger sort of help, self-help world um, which tries to sort of provide practical mediums to facilitate uh, personal growth. Um, in fact, uh, Josh Shapiro... Um, sent, wrote an article, which I recommend, um, about utilizing certain works of Chesterton uh, that he studied uh, with Reb and uh, in yeshiva um, to sort of be a springboard for personal inspiration and personal betterment uh, during the Yom Norayim, this period of Yom Um Personally, you know, there are a lot of books, like obviously, uh, Rev Cook has uh, Orod HaTshuva, there's Rav Salvechik, Al HaTshuva, and those are more general. But then they do have all these books that are coming out now Which are more sort of case specific to specific midot. So you have midot haraya. There's a book called Binyan HaMidot by I think Rev David Abihayel, I think his name is. And there's another book by Rev Avinir that I saw recently also, like on very specific uh, midot and trying to work through them. Um, You know, beyond that, you know, there are sort of all these other books. In English, there's a book called Atomic Habits, which is an attempt to create better habits. Obviously, you have seven habits of highly effective people, which is a classic. And then there's a book by Sean Acker, which I've quoted many times in my shurim, called Before Happiness, which is a very important framework for thinking about what it means to live a meaningful life. But personally, what I try to do, um, and it gets to something you were saying, Rev Gavriel, about the Tomer Devora and the Yugi Momidos Harachamim, I think that uh, Yugi Momidos Harachamim are underappreciated. I think that, uh, I'm not going to lie, Slichos is not the easiest thing for me to connect to, although I do much prefer Svarti Slichos. Uh, I'm not always successful at getting up for the early Svarti Minion, but the earliest Minion in my neighborhood has Slichos is the Svarti Minion. Um, I started going to it uh, before Corona, um, but they never call on me to read. They clearly have a bias and a preference for people of Svartic descent. They do the exact same one every day, which I didn't realize at the time. When I first started going, I'm like, what's going on? We did this yesterday. And I started realizing they do the exact same one every day, which is actually really great, because by the end, you're like, oh, my God, I really know this, and I can really connect to it. And even though they never called on me, and even they were clearly trying to you know, uh, racially profile me and imply that I'm not part of them, I still appreciated the fact that what they were doing was amazing. Um, they were singing, and it was very festive, and I really enjoyed it. That being said, I do really connect to the repetition of the Yugi Mulimitos HaRachamim that we say during Slichos every day. And if you think about that, for example, and just think about what we're being asked to emulate, right? So obviously, Hashem Hashem Kel Rachum V'chanun, right? Just those alone, right? The idea of Hashem being Merachem, right? Being merciful, right? being compassionate. And it goes on. Erech right? Slow to anger, V'rav Chesed. somebody who is, deeply invested in acts of chesed and truth. Just think of those four, four or five virtues. Imagine if every year you took this time to become somebody who is more invested in practical acts of chesed, right? Whether that's you know, going to work at, uh, I don't know, a place that helps with the homeless, whether that's trying to help out people from your neighborhood who are struggling, whatever it is. Imagine, for example, if you're somebody who's who's slow to anger, and you really tried this year to work on anger. Imagine you're somebody who's just more compassionate, Right? with your coworkers, with your friends, with your family, just that alone would be like an amazing way for you to better yourself over the course of the year. So even though there are all these midot that you could focus on, everybody has to sort of try to angle and focus on the midot that really speaks to them. I personally try to focus on the Yuga medot harachamim and to say, what do we know about Hashem? Well, we know about Hashem that these are 13 virtues of Him. And if you want to be like Hashem, you could try your best to emulate those virtues. It's like, imagine a world where those were the dominant theme of our discourse. Like, imagine if the whole world was motivated to live a life just based on the Yuga Momidos right? You would have a totally different world. And um, I heard, just to add uh, one last piece to this, I heard again on the Devil uh, Lichtenstein podcast. Not to, you know, this, I'm, not be, I'm not being you know, paid by the headlines podcast here, but uh, I did listen to this recently, where he said, the interesting insight, he said that oftentimes people, when they get to their deathbed, they have a lot of regret should have done this, I should have done this, I should have done this. And he said, the beauty of, uh, of tshuva and yom raim is that it forces you to not wait until you're in that critical state. Right? It allows you every day, every year to ask yourself, you know, what each, what do you, how do you want to live your life the following year? So like, imagine a reality where all of a sudden we all aspire to live based on yom y- norayim, we internalize that, right? So I think the consequence would be um, enormous, not only on an individual level, but on a, on a practical and communal level. Um, we have like a few more minutes. Maybe just uh, ask Rav Gav if you have any uh, you know, closing thoughts, not only about your personal experience at Chuva, but maybe some more anecdotal stuff about Like, I don't know, what are some fun hugim that you have in the, in the Singer house? Do you, um, I don't know, do you have any specific simanim that you use, any specific simanim that you don't use? Do you have any specific foods that you're to have every year on Rosh Hashanah? Do you have any other uh, that uh, people want to know about? Yeah, for sure. We, our family is very, very into the simonim.
1: Um, the truth of the matter is that we, we for sure use the classical simonim, but we also, the Mishnah Burr brings, and we try to do this, that we try to use the entirety of this the meal and use them as siman as well. For example, you know, one of the go-to moves that we have when we make up simonim is that, you know, there's a mitzvah, according to most halakhic authorities, a mitzvah of simcha siantif, even on Rosh Hashanah. So we have fleshhicks, we have meat. So, you know, meat in Hebrew is basar. So we always say, And we try to go ahead and make up new, uh, new different simanim. One thing that we have that we push, especially with the kids, is that we always have a head of something, whether a head of a fish, a head of a sheep, whatever we can get our hands on, depending on the year. Sheep have been very expensive as of late. So we've been going for the fish. But I always challenge my kids, one of the kids, to eat the eye of the fish. So that way you have an eye in tova and tovah, and you should see everything beautifully and well and whatever. And every year it's always a, a struggle, which kid is going to bite the bullet and go for the eye. Then they give me the challenge. You have to eat the eye also. So this is like uh, something that's coming up every year, I'm sure you have, especially you know. We know there's something called the Amalek Kugel that Yemak no, bid on which no, is not even brought in halacha no. so I'm sure that when it comes to Rosh Hashanah there's already a concept alluded to in the Gemara of Simonim. you have to have some interesting
0: things that happen yeah no for sure I mean obviously Amalek Kugel, it may not be brought in uh, in formal halachic sources but it's been passed down Ish from Moshe Rabbein until today so maybe in the later podcast around porn we'll talk about the Hashivas of uh, Amalek Kugel. but uh, yeah I also am very into the Simanim um, and we try to do as many as possible Um, You know, there is, it can get a little sort of comical sometimes, you know, someone wants to, you know, have hummus and say, you know, you know, so I try to avoid the ones that are totally disconnected. But I do think that um, there is a lot of power to the simanim. In other words, the simanim aren't just like a trick, right? In other words, it's not that we think that by doing these things, we're going to necessarily, change the gazardin. But it creates consciousness, right? And it's a great opportunity to talk uh, through the medium of the simanim, sort of what are our aspirations? What do we want to happen in, uh, in the coming year? And I also try every year to get a fish head. Um, over the years, my, I, I have a lot of daughters, so over, over the years, you also have a lot of daughters. So over the years, you know, they, my son always wants to eat the fish head, at least he's younger. But we, we, we compromised a few years ago that what we did was, uh, we actually went back to the fish head last year, but for a few years, what we we're doing is we we're taking um, gummy worms with fish, fish gummy worms. And then uh, we were cutting them. The problem was it created a whole problem because, you know, as opposed to, like, when you get a fish head, you only have the head. When you cut the gummy worms in half, so you still have the tails. So it, we had a whole discussion about whether if you eat the rest of the tails, you say, but, you know, kids love eating candy. So if you eat the zanav of all the fish gummies, could that adversely affect your entire year? So we made up shara that basically uh, at the table, you only eat the fish heads, but... After the table later on, and if you want to have some fish tails, so it's not going to uh, adversely affect uh, you know, the larger spiritual, metaphysical consequences of a year. But I do think in general that Rosh Hashanah is Yom Ad-Din, but it's also a happy day.
1: You know, Rabbi David, I think you were Mohammed to the Mishaburu. The Mishaburu says already that. You're not supposed to take naps. Uh, you're not supposed to take naps on Rosh Hashanah. But after Chatzos already, you're allowed exactly, to take a nap. Exactly.
0: Exactly. So it's the same There's, thing with the worms. Exactly. You can have so the head. At the at table. The, yeah. Exactly. But after the table already, that's something different. Exactly. Time period. Exactly. So yes. Yeah, so anyway, um, Rav Gabo, this has been great. Pleasure. Been great talking, learning, schmoozing. Um, anyway, I um, just want to wish uh, a k'tiva Khatima tova, a git geben sh'ur to the entire uh, larger Yeshiva to community. I want to offer a big shkaykh to Rav Adi and to Rav Kori for this initiative. It's really a great opportunity to connect and to share Torah, share customs, share your thoughts with the larger community. And obviously, if you have any questions, comments, you can email us at right to podcast at gmail.com and uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, respond to those emails on future episodes. If God any parting words, yeah, and i just like to echo the, the sentiments that Rav
1: shared. Everyone should only have, you know, a great year. And we're looking forward to seeing everyone back in yeshiva to learn both informally and formally together. And everyone should have a meaningful and uplifting experience.